0: Well, good morning. Well, let's talk about my mother for a minute. My mother would have flourished in the days of COVID-19 because my mother had a master's degree in hand washing. And she was fastidious about being germ-free and it was her mission in life to see that her children and her grandchildren followed in her footsteps. I can still remember our kids, Tim and Kristen, when we would call them to dinner, and we'd say, go wash your hands, they would gleefully look at each other, and giggling, they would say, with soap, mimicking their grandma. You see, my mom believed that that hands needed to be scrubbed with soap anytime you did any job in the kitchen whether it was washing dishes getting something out of the refrigerator setting the table or many other thing you did in the kitchen she wanted to make sure that first your hands were free of dirt and all of those unseen enemies that my mom tended to lump together in the catch-all category of germs. I suspect, I'm pretty sure, my mom thought cleanliness is next to godliness was a verse somewhere in Proverbs. Well, the concept of cleanliness is going to loom large once again this morning as we continue our series from Exodus and In particular, this last part of Exodus where we focus on God's instructions for the building of the tabernacle and then the actual construction of the tabernacle itself. And this morning, our passage is going to focus on the bronze basin, and the purpose of the basin was to provide water for the priests to wash their feet and their hands before they approached the altar to Uh, burn a sacrifice, or they approach the tent of meeting to perform their priestly duties there. And we're going to look at the purpose of this ritual within the context of the young Israelite nation that we read about in Exodus, but then we also want to look at what it means for us, because as we have seen before, everything in the tabernacle points to the holiness of God and the unholiness of God's people. They point to the moral perfection of God and the moral degeneracy of God's people. And they point to the need that all people have for a mediator between them, and in fact, pointing ultimately to the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And the reality that the tabernacle points to is that God will dwell in the midst of his people. It's a reality that we have a foretaste of now as the Holy Spirit indwells those who are following Christ, who are, who are saved by his blood. And it's a reality that is, is going to be fulfilled completely in full view of all God's people As God dwells with his people intimately in the new heaven and new earth for all eternity. Now the challenge in preaching about each part of the tabernacle is that there's a lot of repetition. Every part of the tabernacle, as I said earlier, points to God's holiness, our unholiness, and our need for a mediator. The same theme reoccurs week after week, and that's a challenge for both the preacher, and the listeners. But the Apostle Paul reminds us not to worry about those things. In Philippians 3.1, he says that to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. So while the main theme of this passage may sound familiar this morning, it's no trouble for me to repeat it, because it is the theme that God lays out in the book of Exodus. It's the theme that God wants to hammer home to all of the readers of Exodus, and it's the theme that God wants to hammer home to Piney Ridge Church. And so it is no trouble for me to speak about these same things, and it is safe for you. So I plan to emulate another apostle, Peter, and what he says in 2 Peter 1.12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. And with that in mind, I want to look at the, what I see as the main theme of this passage. It's, and I wrote it in two sentences this morning. So the first sentence is, To be a follower of Christ who has been called to a holy priesthood, you must be washed clean once for all by the blood of Jesus. In order to become a follower of Christ, in order to be called as a holy priest, you must be washed clean by Jesus' blood. And then the second sentence is, yet priests of God still need a constant, continual cleansing by the blood of Jesus through confession and repentance of sin to live lives worthy of their calling. And I'm praying that if you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and for your salvation from the wrath of God, that you will hear the call of the gospel this morning and you will believe. That's my prayer for you. And if you are now trusting in Jesus Christ and all that he's done for your salvation, then my prayer is that you will heed your calling as a priest of God, and that you will live lives that are worthy of that calling through perpetual confession and repentance from sin. So let's start this morning to be a follower of Christ and called to a holy priesthood. You must be washed clean once for all by the blood of Jesus. Open your Bibles, please, if you haven't already. Nathan invited you to to Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21. And I want you to look at verse 17. It starts out this way. The Lord said to Moses. And if you look through this section in Exodus, you'll notice that a lot of sections start with that verse. Like just in chapter 30, look at verse 11. Look at verse 14. Look at, I'm not 14, verse 17 I mean. And then look at verse 22, and then look at verse 34. They all say, The Lord said to Moses. Moses wrote this. He's the author of Exodus, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wants us to know that it was God who gave the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. It was God who gave the instructions for the, how to make every piece of furniture that would go in there. It was God who gave the instructions for every implement that the priests used. And it was God who gave instructions for the rituals that the priests were to follow. These instructions and commands come from an all-wise, all-powerful God. And there's a purpose in everything and in every, and a reason for every command. And it was God who 2,000 years later inspired the author of Hebrews to teach us that everything related to the tabernacle is a shadow of the reality that exists in heaven. So it's the Lord who spoke to Moses, and it's the Lord who's speaking to us this morning. So I invite you... Pay attention. Now, as we move on into this passage, we learn that God has instructed Moses to build a basin made of bronze, and it was to sit on a bronze pedestal. Because the altar sat between, or rather, the basin sat between the altar and the most holy, or the, the tent of meeting, which was the holy place and the most holy place. It was farther away from the presence of God. So you'll notice it's not made of gold and silver like some of those uh, things that were put into the tent of meeting were made of. Not those more precious metals, but rather it was made of bronze. However, if you flip over to Exodus 38.8, it's not going to be on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, just flip to Exodus thirty-eight 8, you'll discover that the bronze that was used to make the basin was donated by the women who ministered in the tabernacle complex. These women had mirrors of bronze. They didn't have mirrors like we have today. They took bronze, which is not as uh, valuable as gold and silver, so more affordable, and they would polish the surface to a very smooth finish, and then they would look at it and see their reflections in that bronze. So I just want to point out that while the bronze basin was made of a metal not as precious as gold or silver, it was still donated by these women that ministered in the tabernacle. And to them, this was probably a very precious uh, thing that they donated, that they gave up, that they sacrificed in order to make the bronze basin. The purpose of the basin is quite clear if we look, again, starting in verse 18, back in Exodus 30, God says, The basin is to hold the water in which, with, with which Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and their feet any time they approach the altar to burn food offerings and, and sin offerings, and any time they approach the tent of meeting to put the bread of presence on that table or to burn incense. Every time they are to wash their hands and their feet in this bronze basin. And there is a warning attached, you will notice, so that they may not die. And then just in case the priest didn't get it, God says it again, doesn't it? You need to do this so that you may not die. Now, while the people of Israel certainly had proven themselves to be slow learners, I don't think that the ultimate purpose of God repeating this command and this warning was because they might not get it, but it was because adding emphasis to it. This is a serious business. The priests needed to obey this, or they will die. And to, to some who... Some of us who have uh, more sensitive 21st century Western sensibilities, we might be offended by this. But I want to point out that, that if that is what you're thinking this morning, it's uh, erroneous, it's wrong, it's mistaken sensibilities. First of all, we are far removed from this, this uh, instruction, what was taking place here in Exodus, by time and by distance. We're far removed from this culture, but more importantly, our sensibilities are prone to error because we tend to look at everything in the Bible, we tend to look at everything in life through the view of our own self-importance, through the view of our own self-righteousness and our self-idolatry, instead of viewing all things through the correct lens of God-centeredness. Wash your hands and feet, or you will die? What's the big deal about washing hands and feet? But if we allow ourselves to be distracted by that warning, we're going to miss the extravagance of God's mercy in, this, in, in supplying them with this bronze basin, and, in fact, the graciousness of the warning When my mother told me that I needed to wash my hands before I came into the kitchen, she knew that I needed to do that because they were likely filthy from being in who knows what. But unlike my mother, God's not interested in the fact that their hands are dirty or their feet are dusty. Rather, he is protecting the priests from his own wrath towards sin. You see, the priest's duties required them to touch the altar. And it required them to approach the holy place and, in fact, get right up to the most holy place, which was where the the, uh, presence of God was manifested. And God had set aside the altar as holy. And the, the ground that they walked on was holy ground. But these priests were sinful and so God gives this warning. Now, the warning is not like a threat that as parents we might attach to the end of a command. Go clean your room or you will suffer consequences. Eat your vegetables or you won't get dessert. It's not one, a threat like that. It's more like this. If a parent were to say to a child, oh, Don't play soccer on Interstate 70 or you'll die. Okay? The parent's not saying, if you go play soccer on Interstate 70, I will kill you. The parent is saying, stating a fact, right? Playing soccer on Interstate 70 will likely result in your death. That's the kind of warning that God is giving here. It's a protection. He's saying, do not approach the altar or the tent of meeting if you are tainted by sin, or you will die. But that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem because the priests were, in fact, tainted by sin. The priests were sinful people, and so every time they approached the altar or the tent of meeting, their lives were in danger. And so God graciously supplied a way for them to do their duties without having His wrath come out in fire and consume them. And the command that he gives is, wash your hands and your feet. It's not because washing your hands and your feet will cleanse you from sin, but rather it is symbolic. The outward washing of the hands and the feet is symbolic of a miraculous work of God that only God can do, the cleansing of sins in their souls. Every time the priests approached the Bronze Basin, they were reminded of their sinfulness and they were reminded of their need for God to cleanse them. And so the priests obeyed. Now I want you to think about this. And, and the priests that we're talking about here in, in Exodus 30 are the ones that are going to be consecrated later in Exodus, which are Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's son's. These men had recently witnessed the terrifying images on Mount Sinai as the words of God poured out on the people of Israel out of the the clouds with the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the earth trembling and the loud blast of the trumpet. And they had seen Moses ascend Mount Sinai into the cloud and come back with his face radiant. These men were intimately acquainted with the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And so they approached this with with trembling fear. And yet they also approached this ritual of washing their hands and their feet With faith, would you just think a minute about the faith that it took for these men to say, "Okay, we're going to take God at His word—that if we wash our hands and our feet, that He will spare us from death every time." Think about that tremendous faith that it took to be obedient to God. And it was that faith exercised by those priests that God looked on. And like he did with Abraham who believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, he looked on the obedient faith of the priests and he spared them from death. Throughout the Bible, washing with water is symbolic of cleansing from sin. If we look in in Psalm 51, for example, in verse 2, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And moving down to verse 7, he says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to Uh, Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says to them this in thirty six twenty five: I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Or we can move to the New Testament, and we see the ordinance that Jesus gave to the church: the ordinance of baptism. And we saw Elsa baptized this morning when Elsa when Seth. Plunged Elsa down into the water and brought her out this morning, that didn't cleanse Elsa from her sins. Rather, it was a symbol of what God had done in Elsa's soul. That God, at her conversion, at her new birth, God had cleansed her from her sin. And God had taken off the filthy garments of her sins. And bathed her in the blood of Jesus and then placed on her the clean, pure, white garments of the righteousness earned by Christ. Have your sins been washed away by the blood of the Lamb? Are you trusting in all that Jesus Christ has done? Have you placed your faith in His perfect life? In his sacrificial death on the cross, where he took on the sins of his people and absorbed the wrath of God for all of their sins. And rising from the dead and ascending into heaven and seated now at the right hand of the throne of grace. From where he will return to judge sin and to establish his kingdom in the new heaven and earth, are you trusting in all of that for your salvation? If not, be warned. Take the warning of this chapter. To approach God tainted by sin results in sure death, eternal death, never-ending death. God is serious about his own holiness, and he does not take sin lightly. And you may not live in the presence of God, tainted by sin. So submit to him today. Receive his free gift of salvation. It's all of grace. We don't deserve any of it. But God has graciously, just as he has graciously supplied to Israel the bronze basin, to the priests, the bronze basin, to wash in. He has sent his own son and crushed him to save us. Trust in him today. In Exodus 30, the bronze basin reminded the priests of their sin and their need to be saved from the wrath of God. And the bronze basin is intended to remind us of our sin and our need to be saved from the wrath of God. And the washing of the priest's hands and feet was intended to symbolize the cleansing from sin that can only be accomplished by God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we take this bronze basin and we turn it a little bit, like a diamond, you know how you can look at a diamond? while... It's not like I look at diamonds every day. But, you know, they tell me if you take a diamond and you look at it and then you turn it just a little bit, you see a different facet of it. It looks, you see, you see more beauty, right? More glory. Well, if we take this bronze basin and look at it from just a little bit different perspective, we can also see that it symbolizes that priests of God need a constant Continual cleansing by the blood of Jesus through confession and repentance of sin to live lives worthy of their calling. We've already looked at the cleansing of their hands and feet as symbolizing conversion, right? And it I think we can we can see that. Even a little more clearly, if we jump ahead, and whoever preaches this sermon, I apologize, maybe stealing from myself, I don't know. But if we jump ahead to Exodus 40, where the priests are consecrated, where Aaron and his four sons are consecrated, let's look in, starting in verse 12. It says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. And you shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit to them a perpetual priesthood through their generations. At the beginning of their service as priests, Aaron and his sons were consecrated. That is, they were set apart for special service as priests. They were washed with water. Their whole bodies were washed with water, and they were anointed with oil. But this was a one-time consecration. Once they were consecrated, it says that they shall be priests throughout their generation. They shall be priests for the rest of their lives. They didn't need to have their whole bodies washed and be anointed every time they approached the altar or the holy place. They'd been consecrated as priests one time only. Likewise, when a person is born again, he or she becomes a part of a holy priesthood, Peter in, in 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you, church, talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own profession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you've been justified by faith, in Jesus, you are part of a royal priesthood. Elsa, you are a priest. God has consecrated you as a holy priest. Your conversion is your consecration. You're set apart by God for a holy calling. And you don't need to be justified again and again and again. Again. In that sense, you are clean. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, you're clean. Your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. And you've had priestly robes of Jesus' righteousness placed on you, and you have been set apart by God. But while the priests in Israel did not have to be consecrated again and again each time they ministered in the tabernacle, they did have to do something every time they ministered, didn't they? They had to wash their hands and their feet. Every time someone brought in an animal to be sacrificed, they had to wash their hands and their feet. Every time someone brought in a the fruit of their of their harvest as a, as an offering they had to wash their hands and their feet every morning and every night as they approached the bread, the table of the bread of presence they had to wash their hands and their feet hour after hour day after day week after week And every time they acted out their faith by washing their hands and feet, they trusted that God would honor his promise and cleanse them from sin and spare them from his wrath. For followers of Christ, once we are born again, while we have been set free from the guilt of sin, And while we have been unshackled from our slavery to sin, we are still hounded by sin. We still hear the siren call of sin. And even though we are called to live in obedience, and even though we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we still sometimes stumble and fall, don't we? And the remedy for our sin, those of us who are followers of Christ, is still the same remedy as those who come to Christ the first time need. They need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We don't need to be saved again or justified again. We don't need to be baptized again, but we do need... To be cleansed from our daily sins. It brings to mind the passage in John 13 where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And Peter says, Oh no, you're not going to wash me. You're my Lord, you're my Savior. I can't let you wash my feet. And Jesus just looks at him in love and says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. In the language of Exodus 30, Peter, if you don't wash your hands and feet, you're going to die. And so then Peter's like, okay, then dump the whole bowl on me. Wash me, my entire body. And Jesus again says, no. Peter, you don't need to have your, you've already been cleansed. You've already you're already believing that I'm the Messiah, that I can save you. What you need is to have your feet washed. And Jesus says in John 13:10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, and then here it is, but is completely clean. We're cleansed by our new birth. And yet we need the daily feet washing. And what does that look like in our lives? Well, one way that Scripture teaches us that followers of Christ can be cleansed from their sin is through confession of sin. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God graciously responds to the humble confession of our sins by cleansing us from that sin. He says, if you're a follower of Christ and you sin and you come to him and humbly confess, he goes, my son already paid for that sin. You're forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Meditate on that this week. When you confess your sin, God the Father is saying, my son already paid for that. Pastor Nathan has mentioned, I know, I think twice in the last two weeks that we don't, most of us, he is confident and I'm confident that we don't confess sin as much as we should. And so I think he gave you some instructions, and I'm just going to double down on them. It's a good habit To end each day in prayer and in particularly a prayer of confession and to think back through the day and think about words and actions and thoughts and attitudes that were sinful and confess those sins to God and ask him to fulfill the promise. Believe like the priests believed when they went to the bronze basin that God will honor his promise to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then it's a good idea the next morning when you wake up to start the day with prayer. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will bring to mind in those morning times sin maybe that you haven't uncovered yet in your own heart. And again, pray a prayer of confession and ask God to walk with you that day to steer you away from temptation and to deliver you from evil. Ask him to make you alert to the temptations that are there and to avoid them. Confessing sin is an important part of our sanctification, but so is repentance. Now, I know that in a lot of churches and for a lot of us, we get those words kind of jumbled. And some of us think of confession and repentance as synonyms. I don't. I think of repentance as a direction, a change in a direction of life. I'm walking this way towards sin, and I'm going to turn 180 degrees, math term, and I'm going to run toward God instead. I stop chasing sin and I begin pursuing God. That's repentance. And it involves, as I, what I just talked about, it involves avoiding sin. It involves taking advantage of the way of escape that the Holy Spirit always provides us in temptation it avoids fleeing temptation but it also involves running toward god i love the passage in james 4 verses 8 starting in verse 8 draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded We need to take an active role in cleansing our sins and purifying our hearts by stopping our running towards sin and beginning to draw near to God. And when we do that, we will find that we begin to hate our sin. And that's why James continues in that passage, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As we begin actively avoiding sin and through the power of the Holy Spirit pursuing God, we begin to hate what God hates. And let me tell you, God hates sin. God is in the process of destroying Satan Jesus already won the victory. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of time, right? And he's going to destroy all the works of Satan. And we can be a part of that victory. We have that victory already. It's ours in Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit working in us to cause us to desire the things of God, and to empower us to do the things of God. The language of the Bible as as it pertains to sin and how we ought to respond to it is violent. The Bible says we need to hate sin. We need to stomp on it. We need to wrestle it. We need to grab it by the throat and kill it. Paul says, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil. And he says, we are to stand against the devil by putting on the whole armor of God. We need to put on the the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of readiness given to us by the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and we need to take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and we are to pray at all times. Those are our weapons and our defenses against temptation and sin. And that is how, brothers and sisters, you repent of sin. You put it to death. And it's the victory that Jesus won on the cross that enables us and empowers us to be victorious over sin. I'll close with this passage from 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says, beginning in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, church, That tabernacle, in part, is pointing ahead to us. We are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he tells us what we ought to do in response to that. Therefore, go out from their midst, speaking of the idols, and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Paul, after quoting those passages of Scripture, says this to sum it up Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. In Exodus 30, the priests needed to wash before they ministered in the tabernacle, and we too need our sins repeatedly washed away. We need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us every moment of every day. And we need the power of the cross and the victory of the resurrection to enable us to fight with sin. God doesn't take sin lightly, so Piney Ridge Church, don't you take sin lightly. Go to war with sin. Triumph over it. In your battle with sin, you are more than conquerors through Him who loves you. I invite you now, if you are Trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and you had that faith affirmed in a local church through baptism. I invite you now to ready yourselves to come and, and, and take up the elements of communion. You can do that by exiting to the left, coming down to the front. We have gluten free on the left, and we also have non gluten free on the left, but we have three carts. Just grab it quickly, return on your right. And we invite you to take this communion meal with your family or with friends that are nearby. And as I often do, if you see someone that's here by themselves, rope them into your family and take communion together. We pray. This is a great time to explain what communion is to your children. And pray with your family. And here's what I want you to be thinking about. I want you to be thinking about how you can respond to this message this morning. I want to encourage you this week to spend time every evening and every morning confessing your sin to God and then putting on the full armor of God to go to war with the sin in your life. And as you take communion this morning, give thanks to God for the gift of His Son, who who has saved you and who empowers you to do this battle with sin. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation this morning, I invite you, rather than taking communion, to, to pray and ask God to open the eyes of your heart that you can see and believe and understand the gospel. Ask God to save you. I'll be sitting in the back with Sandy, and if, if anybody would like prayer, or if you would like to talk to me about the gospel, feel free to come back, and I'll be glad to pray with you or talk with you. And for those who should, you may now come to the Lord's table.